0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com.
1: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9. As you turn there, I'm going to pray again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We praise you, Jesus, for who you are. Come and fill this place. Be honored in our midst. May we find you as guide, as guardian, as caregiver, and as the one who is sovereign over all, working peace between us and you, between us and others. Open your word to us. Help me today be a faithful expositor. Encourage hearts today in who you are. In your name I pray, amen. Last week we began in the first verses of this chapter noting how we have this promise that light would dawn on Galilee of the Gentiles. And in the early part of Luke, we see this text cited with respect to Jesus. Nazareth, Capernaum, the two main hubs for his life, and Zebulun and Naphtali were the two two key spots there. What we read in this early part is this statement of hope. Light and joy pouring out among peoples who were in darkness. Verse 3, you've multiplied the nation. In what way? You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And then you see in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, each one of those verses begins with a conjunction. For. You've increased their joy. For. There's a reason that God has done it. And as I I see this text, I think it's not for uh, coordinate statements that are, so for, because of this, and because of this, and because of this, but rather, they're all building on one another. God has multiplied the nation's joy because God will deliver. Notice how there is some kind of delight in the present because they are desiring something in the future. You see that? God has multiplied their joy now because He will do something tomorrow. Today I have joy because tomorrow God's going to show up. And already we find ourselves in an already but not yet reality where we can relate to this. For Isaiah, all of it was future. Jesus hadn't even come at all. But now, He's in our past and He's still in our future. Because God will deliver tomorrow, I have joy today. For God will deliver for all the enemy will be destroyed for a king will rise. That's the logic of the passage. Because a king is coming, a particular king, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us, I know that The enemy will be overcome, that God will deliver, and therefore I have joy today. So this is written to a people for whom deliverance hasn't come, the enemy hasn't been destroyed, and the child hasn't arrived. And yet they still have joy. How much more joy for us, because He has come already, definitively. Light intruding into darkness. It's only dawn. It's not yet noon. But we can be confident that because dawn has come, noon will come as well. Last verse. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. That future new Jerusalem when it comes to earth. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into this city. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Everlasting noon forever. Highest sun never ending. So we begin. You've increased the nation's joy. The people are rejoicing because the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, O God, have broken as on the day of Midian. I'm not exactly sure why Isaiah is thinking of Midian. But I bet many of you remember the story. It's in the book of Judges. It has to do with Gideon. Do you remember the story when at the spring of Herod, that's what we're looking at here, all of Gideon's army went down and God said, okay, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Do you remember that? So there was a group of them, and the student who is uh, lapping, the text actually says he, he still lapped with his hand, so it was kind of a, like this, but he's not on his knees. Everyone who was on their knees drinking got sent home. And those who were lapping like a dog and yet it said something about its hand, so I'm struggling to understand the image. But 300 were doing this over the spring of Herod, and those 300 were told, this is after everybody who was afraid got sent home. Then everyone who was um, on their knees drinking got sent home. All that's left is an army of 300 to battle against the Midianites. And we're told... We're told that they, the Midianites were as many as the sand on the seashore spread out in the valley. And so Gideon was a little bit nervous. God said, I'm going to defeat them, but if you are a little nervous, then take your friend with you down into the camp and see what you hear. Remember, he went to a tent and somebody shares a dream about a loaf of bread falling down a hill and wiping them all out. And it sounds very weird to me. It's a barley loaf. And then the other guy interprets the dream and says, oh my, that must be Gideon. We're done for. All the while, Gideon's up with his 300 men. Every company would have a trumpet and a lamp. And so he spreads out 300 men on the hillside. But rather than there only being one lamp and one horn for every 100 people, there's only one lamp and one horn for every person. And he spreads them out and the people think they're surrounded by a massive number when there's only 300. And all the armies freak out and they kill kill each other and Gideon wins. And God does it this way, so that they would know, my own hand has not saved me here. And this text says, you find joy today, because the yoke of your burden, the staff of your shoulder, the rod of your oppressor, God will break. In fact, it even says, you have broken it, as if it's already accomplished as on the day of Midian. So this connection with Midian, I think what it's testifying is that we find greater joy when God wins than when we win. There's there's an increasing of our joy. You've increased their joy because you've defeated the enemy like you did it in the way you did it at Midian. There's greater joy when we recognize we were utterly helpless, what we could not accomplish it, and you did something we could not do over our enemy. And you did it for us. We weren't your enemy, we were the ones you were delivering. And you worked on our behalf, and joy is maximized. That's how he's going to work. That's what Isaiah is envisioning. That he's going to be defeating the enemy in a way that those whom he's providing for and protecting couldn't have accomplished it on their own. And our joy will be increased. And that's what he's done in the person of his son. He has overcome an enemy that we could not defeat, that was bigger, more ugly, than we could overcome. And God has done it on our behalf. Both in bridging the gap of that distance that was there separating us from Him. Indeed, we were His enemy and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Reconciling us with Him. But then making a way that every sickness and every relational brokenness would be overcome by the power of His grace. That He would defeat every enemy in our lives, every one who has abused us, every level of brokenness, He will move us from desperation to deliverance and to delight where there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more hurt and do it in a way that we can never say, my own hand has saved me. That is hope. And what we read is for the people who were walking in darkness, that actually see this kind of light, who didn't know if dawn would ever come, and all of a sudden they're given eyes to see the sun on the horizon, the rising of the S-O-N. Joy rises in their soul. He's broken... The oppressor, the burden, as on the day of Midian, because the enemy has been overcome. Because every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now back in Isaiah 2, You remember what we read. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war. No more war. Rather, everyone's got to get involved in gardening. Because the bounty is going to be so great The plenty is going to be overflowing, and every hand is going to need to be on deck. Rather than holding a sword, you'll be holding your rake and your pruning shears. In this text, every boot of the trampling warrior, every garment rolled in blood, that means the the enemy has been destroyed, will be burned as fuel for the fire. All of it overcome. And here he puts it in the future tense. Will be burned. And because he's so confident that it will be burned, he's confident that God has broken. So verse 4 is written as a perfect tense, whereas verse 5 is future tense. You have already broken the enemy, because I know that you will destroy him. It's, it's that, scholars sometimes call it a, a prophetic perfect, meaning it's as if it's already done. He's that certain, and so the joy is already rising because he's absolutely so confident God's going to show up as He's promised. Now we come to verse 6, and this is beauty this is the the ultimate ground because verse six and seven are going to happen that's what ensures the defeat of the enemy which ensures that deliverance will be maximized which gives rise to joy in the present it's because this this child is going to come For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called four things Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child. We hear about him very early in our Bibles that a child was to come. Specifically, that a son would be born. And then we hear echoes of this text in all the Christmas accounts. Like this one. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Unto you is born. A child is born. Unto you, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord He's specifically, though, a son. So, and it's a son who's given. And I wrestled with this. Is this the idea that, okay, I'm going to give you a son, as in there's nothing, and now there's a son for Mary, or is it a son is given, that is, I have a son, and I'm giving that son to you. For what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh, God did by sending his own son, where he has the son. A son is given. Yes, this very son of God. Back in chapter, chapter seven, this son, you can just turn there, 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And His name is going to be God with us. Her son is none other than the very Son of God. That's what Isaiah's picturing, I think. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only Son. And that's already what Isaiah is envisioning. That a son would be given. A child would be born. A son, namely, He is the eternal Son of of the divine trinity who becomes the son of God of redemptive history. But he has always been the son. And now he's given. And he becomes a man. And as that transfer happens, he is God with us. That's, that's what I think Isaiah's picturing. I will put enmity between you, Satan, serpent, snake, dragon, and between the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're looking at a singular male offspring of the woman. That's what's anticipated from the beginning. And once Israel gains a kingship, we know that he wasn't only supposed to be a Shemite in the line of Abraham, in the line of Judah. We learn that he'll be in the line of David and king after king after king. We've got David, then Solomon, then 20 more kings in the line of Judah and none of them line up. Every one of them are sinners. Even the two good kings... Hezekiah and Josiah are not perfect men, and the spotlight moves off of them, continuing to look ahead, to look ahead to this one, this son who would be given, who would be more than man, he would be Emmanuel, and in that we find our hope. It says the government would be on his shoulders. Later in the book we read this: "I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, He shall shut and none shall open." He won't just have the, an office, he'll have the whole government, I mean, overseeing everything, one man. This is the biblical vision for politics. And a democracy is necessary because only one man can do this well. Monarchy. Complete oversight, complete power in one particular individual in any other context where Jesus is not that person, it's highly destructive. Highly dangerous. And therefore, we have a very solid, helpful, good government for a bunch of sinners. But this kingdom, we need not fear. He will have all power on Himself. The very one Who's been declared to have all authority in heaven and on earth? Already reigning at the right hand of God, upholding all things, speaking everything. This little pulpit, this remote control, my computer, your clothing. All of us hope He keeps speaking our clothing into existence. Moment by moment, creating all things, upholding all things by the word of His power. That is our Christ, Messiah. This one gets four names. You'll remember last week I I identified, if you turn back to chapter... 7, no, chapter eight, 8, 1. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, said to me, take a large tablet and write on it common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then we find out that, that Isaiah is supposed to name his son that. Notice there's three dashes. Four names: Maher, Speed, Shalal, Spoil, Hash, Haste, Baz, Booty. Speed, Spoil, Haste, and Booty. That's his son's name. Like a law firm, sure. It'll probably work. And and what we find out is that this boy who's got this four names in one is an immediate sign, meaning in Isaiah's lifetime, when he's born, before he knows how to cry out, my father, my mother, then the Lord will destroy the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria, he'll carry it away by the king of Assyria. Before he's even able to cry out, daddy, mommy, His life pictures, he's like a, I mean, he goes to school and you've got to, I mean, you'd think they'd want to abbreviate it, you know. Um, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, let's go play kickball. Let's, how'd you do on your spelling bee? But every time they say his name, it's a reminder, judgment. Judgment, judgment, and if he's already in school, judgment has come. The word of the Lord was true. Before he said mommy and daddy, it had already come. Namely, Damascus and the northern kingdom of, of Samaria, Israel, had already been wiped out. And therefore, they could be absolutely certain that that was the immediate sign that the future son the one called Emmanuel, born of a virgin, when he showed, we could be certain, he, will, he too would show up, and we were told that when he showed up, before he even knew how to refuse good and evil, oh yes, not only Israel, but also Judah, would have been long deserted, overcome, and destroyed. What we learn is that when this child shows up, he's going to be coming into a former garden that's been overcome by weeds. It's been burned down. A people who are oppressed and broken. It's darkness. That's where he shows up. He shows up in darkness. And into that, he brings hope. So the four names of Mahir Shalal Hashbaz anticipate the four names of now Emmanuel. So let's just look at them. They're just beautiful. And what's amazing is that each name, which is designated for the son, is elsewhere in this book associated directly with Yahweh. Which suggests that all of these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, all of those are embodying Emmanuel, God with us. That we're supposed to see this son has a perfect identity with his dad. He's embodying the character of his father. And as he comes working justice and righteousness for you and for me to overcome sin, to overcome the brokenness in our own lives, it's the sign that God is moving in our behalf. That God loves us. Wonderful counselor. What does a counselor bring? Advice, wisdom, Wisdom. guidance, Guidance. Purpose. purpose. Something that people who've been walking in the dark for a while could use. Your word is a lamp. He is the counselor to enter in. To give clarity to where the pain actually ex- exists. To help us see what's really there. He's able to go right inside and assess and work healing in the most perfect of ways. Here's what we read. This comes from the Lord. The Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel. Excellent In wisdom. This word for wonderful is the word that we see in Genesis 18 when Sarah is getting tea and crumpets for the three men who approached the tent. Now, Sarah had a challenge. What was her challenge? At 90, she was still barren. I've been intending, we thought about this uh, a few weeks ago, my grandma's birthday is right around the corner, and I just want to send her a little note to say, Grandma, you're 90, and you could have a baby. <laughs> and see what she says. I, yeah, give her a... <laughs> right. Grandma is no more. Um, so... The, thanks Paul. (laughs) But Sarah is barren and one of the men who was outside her tent was Yahweh. The other two were angels. They're sent off to Sodom. But while these three men are there, the one whose name is Yahweh, it just says, and Yahweh spoke. It doesn't say, and the messenger spoke on his behalf. It's just When he speaks, Yahweh speaks. And he says to Abraham, one year from now you're going to have a son. A son that anticipates the son we're talking about today. Through Isaac will your offspring be reckoned, made right. It's going to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Indeed, a son of your own loins, through Sarah, it's going to happen. And when... That happened, what did Sarah do? She laughed. Because she's been barren all of her life. And since the end of chapter 11, we were told she's barren. And yet God had promised Abraham, a nation will come from you. Indeed, through your offspring, the world will be blessed. So it's Genesis 18. She hasn't had any son yet. One year from now, your 90-year-old gal is going to conceive, blossom, and have a child. She laughs, and then God says something. What does He say? Is anything too hard, too difficult, too wonderful? That's the word. Is anything too miraculous for our God? Don't doubt He is a wonderful counselor, a counselor of wonders, excellent in wisdom. And when Christ is operating in this way, He is operating like Yahweh Himself, as Yahweh Himself.
0: Jason. Yes. Just kind of the, the everlasting Father that clearly is talking about Christ and yet saying. He embodies um, the, the fullness of the Father. Do you think there's a hint here of the
1: Holy Spirit? Is this reading too much in to think that, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is a counselor? Because Christ says, I'll send a counselor on my behalf. I hadn't built the connection, but that makes good sense to me. Because... In the book of Acts, the Spirit himself is called the Spirit of Christ. And that's what the church is empowered with. A holy counselor. So that's, that's good. Um, good biblical theology. I wouldn't doubt at all if when we read that language in the New Testament that that's connected with that text. That's good. Mighty God. Mighty is associated throughout the Bible with one principal context. Where do you think? War. The image here is of a God who is able. And Jesus' own name is Mighty God. If we question God with us, it's right there. It's embodied in His own makeup. And mighty is is just a term that is so often associated with the Lord Himself. Just one page over in my Bible, we've got the language that, uh, beginning in verse 20... In that day, in that future day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on Him who struck them, going to foreign powers for aid, but He will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to whom? The mighty God. He's proven Himself great And therefore, we put our trust in the Great One. When Paul in Philippians 4 says, don't be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, then he says something. What does he say? With thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace doesn't only come by praying. We turn from anxiety toward prayer and toward thanksgiving. And I think it's that thankful element, that conscious reminding ourselves, reminding our soul, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God as you remember how he's carried you for 11 years. I wish I could have met Hannah because I love this family dearly. And yet the family I know would not be the same if Hannah was still here. I also know that. There is a beauty, a rock, evidenced, in your lives, that is so attractive to me. And I love you dearly. Pausing to remember, God has been mighty. And then peace comes. But we need that that reminder of the thankfulness because in the moment, the darkness can seem so thick, the giants can seem so tall. And we have to step back and force ourselves to remember the mighty God. In Psalm 78, I as a dad am challenged when it reminds me. God established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children. Why? That the next generation might know what God has done. Indeed, the children yet unborn and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. I, as a dad, have a responsibility to remind my kids of the stories in this book and of the stories that have played out in our own lives in order to testify to the mightiness of our God. Because that's where I will gain peace. When the storms roll in and the darkness gets thicker. Even though it's dawn, the haze doesn't burn away. And it's still dark. And it's still cold. And it's still wet. I've got to pause and remember the mightiness of our God. The Lord your God is in your midst. This statement in Zephaniah 3 is future-oriented for Zephaniah. It's focused on the same day, same age, same period as Isaiah's talking about in our passage. Not something he's enjoying now. He's looking ahead to the day when the light would dawn. So too, in that future day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God in your midst is mighty to save. And he's only able to say that in light of his absolute confidence in what God has declared in this book and the experience of that God in his own life. He just knows it to be true. Remind yourself, remind your children, take the opportunity this Christmas to meditate on the mighty works of God and See what it can do in your own hearts. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And how does He prove Himself? How does He work? He does it through His Son, whose name is the Mighty God. He is wonderful counselor as guide. He is Mighty God protector. Everlasting Father. The, I don't know if there's two sides to this, um, but I'll say the one side and then I'll go to the part I'm much more certain of. The part I'm not as certain of is if this everlasting Father is partly an echo of the fact that Abraham would be a father of a multitude of nations. And that Abraham was putting his own hope, his own faith, in the offspring to come. So even though he is the father of a multitude by adoption, his fatherhood is realized only through the son who would come from him that he himself was believing in God to bring. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. That was in relation to the offspring promise that Abraham would become a father only through what that future son would bring, would serve as a... He he would stand as an agent bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. And therefore, Abraham's fatherhood is bound up in this son, making that son the ultimate father. That is, we're adopted into him. This text could be pointing to that in some ways. But there's something even more at stake. So here's later in Isaiah where Yahweh Himself is called the Father. But now, O Yahweh, You are our Father. We are the clay. You're the potter. You can do with us what You will. You hold us in Your hand. You protect us. You shape us. The thing that is formed, which which is supported, you keep in perfect peace. The ESV translates it the mind, um, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Isaiah 26, 4. Word for word, it's the thing that is formed, like a potter, using this exact language, which is supported. It's not a lump of clay that's outside the potter's hands. It's a lump of clay in the potter's hands. The thing that is formed, which is supported, you keep in perfect peace. Because in you, he is trusting. So you get into the hands of God by trusting in this God. And in those hands, it's like a barrier, a, per- <coughs> a protection. And he's the Father. He's the Father. And what did Jesus say? Have I been with you so long, Philip, that you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. You're encountering the Father when you encounter Jesus. All that the Father is, the Son is. So that the Son, who is God with us, can be called the everlasting Father. He is unchanging. He doesn't start and leave. He doesn't fail and He doesn't abuse. He is constant, ever-caring, and ever-faithful, ever-strong, ever-providing, ever-protecting. He's here to redefine our understanding of fatherhood and to help we as dads, when we fail, to find hope and new identity as we find ourselves identified with His perfection. He's here to be a support that some of you have never experienced in a father. And Jesus embodies all this. Every provision, every protection, the perfect caregiver. Um, the... There's a complexity, and if you've got your Hebrew text open, you can see that there's a complexity. Um, the, the Jews did distinguish wonder and counselor as two different elements. The Jews, after Jesus, who gave us the... Who, who made the whole Bible into a big song and chanted it, they put a break between wonder and counselor. But they united mighty God everlasting father is a single word and prince of peace they united Um, I think there's four it makes sense to me that it's one long name we usually break it up but it would be in the same way that the Hebrew for the first for, for Isaiah's son his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz and it's grouped into one long name that's his name and we're supposed to not separate all these, but just call Jesus by. And I don't have the Hebrew in front of me; I could get it, but it's, it would be even bigger than Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It would be, but wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I, it's this—that's His name, and uh, I can just picture you know contemporary music people trying to. Uh, You know, when they, the songs that are repeating, you know, Jesus, Jesus, and they're trying to fit all that in. Um, (laughs) So it is a name, and the idea is, he's not one of these and not the other. I think this is an embod, all these are expressions of his character that he is for us. And we don't call him this, they are more like titles, Um, but the name We don't always pick our names as blessings or as goals or as trajectories, identification markers of who this person is, but we see that a lot in the Old Testament, right? Even Jesus' name, it it specifies they called him Jesus because Joshua, Yahweh save, because he would save God's people from their sins. So Jesus' very name embodies his character, his mission, And that's what I'm seeing play out here. I think what it reminds us of is that this is what Christmas is about. Christmas is about Easter. We can't separate them. The reason he came was to die in order to save, in order to supply. Guidance, protection, care. That it's all bound up and everything goes public, goes operative at his resurrection. That's where, so you have an intrusion, a beginning intrusion in his life, but the resurrection vindicates, indeed, Jesus is the one that all hope rests upon. So the question is, how do we get through Isaiah if you're a Jew and not a Jewish Christian? What are they reading when they're reading texts like this? And there are some non-Christian Jews who are still hoping for a person and are read this as a person, but there's a much greater number today that view this more as the ideal hope of Israel that will still come. They're viewing this not as a person, but as the nation being portrayed as a person the nation that will rise in the end that will be victorious overall that will have peace that will be the guide to everyone and they're still putting their hope but realizing it on a corporate rather than an individual scale so that's been my interactions has been um, seeing far more jews who or have that mentality, who've lost sight of a messianic person, perhaps in direct response to Christianity, saying, no, he's not Jesus. Is is Isaiah 9
0: big to them in the way that it is
1: big to us? I don't know. That's a good question. How big is Isaiah 9 to non-believing Jews? But I'm saying, yes, it's big. It's big to us. And just look at the last one here. In that day, this song will be sung. This is the text we just looked at. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on You because He trusts in You. Oh Lord, You will ordain peace for us. Peace. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to Jerusalem like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee. This prince language, prince of peace. This is overseer. The one in charge. And because he's in charge, there's peace. It's because he has the role he does, the office that he bears, that there is peace. He has that much power. He's able to instill fear. He's able to control anyone that would want to be against him. We have no power that is that, in this age that is of that much, that strong. And yet, his strength is going to be so manifest that there will be no Contrary force, so that everything will be peace. What's amazing is how this is worked out in this book. How does this son king triumph? He triumphs and brings peace through his punishment. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's where it all starts. It starts by the wrath of God being appeased by being poured out on the Son of God so that it doesn't get poured out on the sons of God. It's those who are in Jesus that enjoy peace. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. They were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, through this child-born king, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. On the earth, peace among those whom He's well-pleased. Verse 7, all this peace, all this hope, this guidance is focused in on the Davidic promise that God would put a son on David's throne forever. That is Christ. I just want to A few verses. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call His name Jesus. He'll be great, Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give Him the throne of His father David, and He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. I think when the New Testament authors are giving us these passages, they've got Isaiah on their mind. Justice and righteousness... The text just goes out of its way to pinpoint this justice and righteousness as being worked through this king. We'll look at this text next week. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I just want to go to my conclusion. For those once in darkness, it says, the Lord has caused light and joy to increase because... His raising up a divine king ensures the downfall of every enemy and relief from every oppressor. That's how the, grounds are, the ground clauses are working. Because the king will come, the enemy will be destroyed, which means that God will truly deliver, and that gives us joy. God has multiplied the nation's joy because God has delivered because all the enemy will be destroyed, because a king will rise as guide, protector, caregiver, and sovereign. This text gives us a basis for Merry Christmas. Joy. Even if the darkness is lingering, to remind ourselves the light is shining. And gives us hope for more light. To let merriness fill our hearts at a level that the rest of the world that's living in darkness can't touch. Because the guide protector caregiver sovereign has come. The Emmanuel is with us. Father, I thank you for your word, for the hope of your word. Thank you that in Jesus... Light has dawned, joy has come. Fill us with joy. May this Christmas be merry and bright, even if our circumstances are broken and dim. Work in us the hope of the gospel. thank you that you're our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of peace. Work it now in these people, I pray through Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason Deroshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Deroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Deroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God Who Reigns, Saves, and Satisfies, through covenant for His glory in Christ.